This episode contains discussions around addiction, suicide and violence. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Stories of Hope, real honest stories of transformation, brought to you by Junction 42. On today's episode... There's a part of me that is self-harm and self-destructive. It led to me talking to a solicitor and saying, I would rather be in jail. So I asked the solicitor, could we activate the sentence? Could I just go inside? I was trying really hard. My name's Richie and this is Stories of Hope. Welcome. This is a short series of episodes chatting with real inspirational people who have overcome challenges, heartache and trauma. And this week, I'm chatting to Santi. Hey, how are you doing? You know, this is really funny because this is the first episode that we're actually doing. So you are the first person if this goes terribly wrong (laughs) there's no more episodes so it's all on you okay no pressure i like that before we started recording we've obviously just been out for a coffee had a little wonder through newcastle and i think one thing that i realized straight away is that you are a very likable guy and you seem to know a lot of people yeah we've walked from junction 42's hq round the corner to a coffee shop literally two minutes away and you must have spoke to maybe five people like why is that so i've been doing life in an area where i really would have probably preferred not to i'd have preferred like when the dark days were there to be taken elsewhere to be around people that you know nobody knows us when i get through the the madness so to speak of addiction and alcoholism and offending and you know picking the pieces up and what you see there is a lot of predominantly the least the last and the lost that i was talking to someone that i was do you know what i mean that was that was predominantly you yeah, like I, I came from a good family, but there was a there was a period through my choices and my, you know, undiagnosed and unrecognized alcoholism and what that does to you, where that takes you. You've got quite a history. Like what was like your childhood like? So what was evident to me was like in high school or senior school, I was aware that like the way that things were, I wasn't too satisfied with. There was nothing that I could do about it. Like my dad kind of left us and left a family unit, you know, he's got excuses as to why or justifications and um, explanations and so on. But like things often felt unjust. I felt like there was never enough time to be understood the way I would like to be understood. Okay. Where I grew up, it was a bit of a goldfish bowl. It was out in the sticks and we grew up with them with with little money in, in a council place. So you had to be hard. And so, you know, even though I was someone that through no choice of my own, I had to, part of the personality I've got, I had to fight to kind of survive. It led through the people attempting to push buttons at time to, to stand up for myself to the extent where people knew I wasn't to be messed with. At what point in the timeline would you say like things started like going wrong for you? Once I was out on my own two feet, right, and I'd been working, but I, I was eventually able to kind of have my own tendency shared with a friend and stuff, I started to kind of party a lot. And when I was partying a lot, that was something I couldn't navigate regarding burning the candle at both ends. I wasn't able to kind of um, balance that, you know, so whatever I had going on regarding jobs, college and things like that, I wasn't able to maintain. Society would say that success is holding down a job, having your own place, having a car, having a family, Earning lots of money. I, I excelled at the things I did, but I put so much kind of effort into them and kind of like put so much pressure on myself to do so well because there's a perfectionist in there as a default. 
I found that to try and ease the pressure and relax in that, my avenue for doing so was to was to go out to party to seek something for self. So self-seeking, I know from recovery is what they call it. And it would be sex, drugs, rock and roll. Do you know what I mean? That would be the stuff I would look for. And what I didn't know how to do was to maintain. And the biggest problem I had at the time was interpersonal relationships, especially with authority. So people who were on my side, great. People who I felt weren't disrespectful, didn't respect us, didn't like us, gossiped about us, had a problem with us. Yeah. I couldn't help but show it. I could be quite confrontational with anybody who kind of came against us, especially if I felt like it was unjust, like it was coming from a place of um, bullying or um, it didn't feel fair, you know? So I would confront it, whether it was authority or not, whether it was someone in charge, a manager and whatnot. I was quite pugnacious in the way in which I dealt with things. I was ready and eager to fight, simple as that. It meant that I lost jobs. You mentioned before that you'd obviously been in prison. What happened the first time you ended up in prison? There was a day where I, uh, I went into Newcastle and I ended up getting on the drink with some friends who I hadn't spoken to for a long time while I'd been abroad. Three of us get together and have a skin full of drink and have a chat. And I know at the time, because I'm using weed as a medication to cope with all the stresses and the problems, that there's no weed left at home. With a skin full of drink, that doesn't feel too good. And there's a lad at the Metro, a homeless lad, offers us to buy some, what he said is Valium. I know now in, in retrospect, it was lorazepam, which is a little bit stronger. So I had what they call a blackout on the Metro. I don't remember it. Okay. Me stepmom is dissatisfied with me being there and being on the sofa and is choosing this particular moment while I'm drunk and have taken this lorazepam that she's not probably aware of that I've taken that. I doubt I've told her. And so she confronts us. And at that point, I lost me temper. Don't really remember it. But this was the this was the tipping point. Yeah. It, it, it led to us picking the TV, the 50-inch TV off the wall and trying to chuck it out the council house window. So there was basically glass all over. I cut my hands, there was blood all over my hands. She went into a different room and I'm trying to boot the door through to, to get to her without being aware of what I'm doing. And I can remember a flashback of me little brother, who I care a lot about, shouting, I'm in here, I'm scared. And that was enough to make us stop instantly and to go outside and to just wait. So the police come? Yeah, but I, I'm in a police court cell when I wake up in the morning with, with cut hands and blood on my hands and no recollection of what's gone on. And I think the worst, I think, what have I done? People wake up in jail having done terrible things and I wouldn't want to hurt anybody. Anyway, it led to me talking to a solicitor and saying, I, I would rather go inside. Like there's a part of me that is self-harm and self-destructive that wants to be punished for the pain that I'm living in, the life that I'm living in the choices I've made that are just equating to bad choices one after the other. A lot of pain, a lot of disappointment with my lot in life or people's choices who are close to us. So I asked the solicitor, could we activate the sentence? Could I just go inside? And that way that I don't have to try and maintain. I was trying really hard. You were crying out for help, weren't you really? You were saying like, look, I'm kind of aware there's issues here, but like going to prison would be such a big deal for me. In fact, I'll be honest with you, that is one of my biggest fears. I've got two fears in life. Okay. One, that I have an affair. Yeah. And two, that I end up in prison. We're different then, definitely. So for me, I was excited at the thought of a different experience. So you just thought... It's an experience. It's an experience. I'm going to get out of this rubbish. Yeah, it's, it's probably going to potentially align me with an opportunity to be out of the difficulties that I was in before. So there might be a chance that from there I'll get some kind of um, education courses, maybe move on to having me own place somehow. You were screaming for help. Yeah, you yeah, were saying yeah. like... I'm not coping, this isn't working, so put me in there. I felt like I was damned if I do and I damned if I don't, and no matter what I did, it was never good enough. And I was always trying really hard. It's incredibly difficult as a grown man to live on the sofa and to be doing a backbreaking, you know, physical work and to be doing 60 to 80 hour weeks as a labourer and take yourself there to try and keep the cost down to buy a ring for a fiancé, maintain a long-term relationship, all this stuff. 
I wasn't in control. I wasn't, you know, I was in my dad's home on their sofa dealing with their life. There was a lot of pain revolving me dad leaving in the first place when we were kids abandoning us and, you know, choosing to take on a, a difficult and needy partner over looking after his kids and so on. There was a lot of pain there. So you... You head in prison. How long are you in prison for? Like, how long did you do? Four weeks. <laughs> wow. yeah, I got four weeks. And you, and you came out and you were a changed person and you lived happily ever after. Definitely not, no. And that is the end of the podcast. <laughs> That's it, yeah? Yeah, no, it was it was a short stint. Can you remember kind of that experience of being in prison? I do. I really enjoyed it, as mad as that sounds. So, um, like... You enjoyed going into prison? Despite what my mum was like, she taught us manners. We were well-behaved, well-mannered kids, and that goes a long way. I wasn't perfect. You just had a lot of issues like, and, you know, the smashing the TV, the trashing, the drinking, that was like your anger. Yeah. I guess, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but you're kind of crying out inside and actually the only way you can articulate how you feel is literally by lashing out. It was a reaction It was, and rather than a response, a well-thought response. I didn't have the tools. I wasn't wise enough. You know, I hadn't, didn't have experience. I didn't have any good male role models or anyone like that. So, you know, with my dad leaving, this was my reaction to the dissatisfaction with the disrespect, lack of love, lack of care that I felt was given. All of that combined added to drink or drugs and, you know, that undiagnosed alcoholism, not being aware that that was what was going on. I had no tools. So that was my response. So you're in prison and then what happens, like what happens after that? So basically I start chefing. Yeah. I learned then how to um, run a kitchen, how to um, bake, um, how to cook specials, to how to stock, how to order and how to clean and run a kitchen. It's more than what I'd done before. And I ended up getting given that job to do solely on my own. They moved the head chef to a care home and I was running that myself. But that's like a lot of responsibility. Did the cracks obviously show again? So they stocked the upstairs with a fully stocked bar. It was kitted out ready to start running almost a restaurant. So when I was in there on my own and the pressure of having to do that when I didn't have the experience and didn't really want that. So the alcohol being there was just impossible for me to resist and I ended up drinking while working. I can remember cycling my bike home, which is like seven miles, mortal, banging into barriers and coming off, crashing and cutting my face up and all sorts. So I'm guessing you, you must have moved on after that. It led to eventually getting a job as a supervisor at Starbucks, where I wasn't obviously doing anything but working really hard when I was at work. But outside of work, I was smoking weed or, you know, sometimes drinking. What happened, trying to keep maintain a tenancy, not having really enough income and having a plan with me mom to move into the flat that me gran was in before she passed away. But me mom took that opportunity away after saying that she would, she would allow it. And this was going to be the stability, the foundation for me to continue this supervisor role. And you had like an opportunity and a hope, I guess, a hope for the future. Yeah, you know, so all this chaos in the past, right? The offending, the coming out and everything. Everything was going well. It was maintaining. Not only that, but I was a little older. So I had some some real stability going on. Yeah, when yeah. my mom took that away, I attempted suicide. Genuinely, sincerely. And this was a lot to do with a depressive mindset. You know, like an alcoholic is going to be depressed a lot of the time because it's a depressant. But I didn't know that at the time. I had no insight. At that point, I ended up waking up in hospital three days later and I had to carry on and I really didn't want to that entered us into the world of being involved in mental health services. And that's probably like the first, I guess, time like you've had any proper help yeah. from professionals. Absolutely. You've been in prison, you're asking for help. You've obviously come out, you've continued life, yeah. got yourself a couple of jobs, holding it down, managing to kind of get through day by day. And obviously this is the first point what sort of help did you get? Yeah, so it led to a diagnosis. It led to um, talking to a good psychiatrist and getting some understanding about what was going on. And it led to some stability where I wasn't requiring trying to maintain life. Yeah. 
So from first engaging with mental health services in 2013, by 2015, I was reasonably stable through a couple of years of working through recovery and getting mental health help. What diagnosis were you given? Emotionally unstable personality disorder, EUPD. That was, that was the diagnosis, depressed at the time also. Were you on medication? I was on loads of medication, but they changed it all the time. Do you think the medication and the diagnosis was the turning point for you? Mm -hmm. Was that the point where... It, it was definitely part of moving in the right direction, but certainly not for staying on it. For me, it was, it was almost like a sticky plaster. It worked for a period of time because it felt like there was action getting taken in a worldly setting that wasn't drink or drugs. It was a remedy. Yeah, I don't make it any secret. I was diagnosed quite late on with ADHD, adult ADHD. You know, took a lot of medication. Mm. I felt it was like almost just sticking a plaster over the issue, but not necessarily getting to the core. I don't think it fixed any of the core, to be fair. I think it literally was just a plaster for the moment. The issue with me, and I'm absolutely aware of it now, is that I was an alcoholic or an addict. And the problem with those things is it's a thinking disease, not a drinking disease. Yeah. It's a problem with life, not a problem with drink. If you're not able to do life without picking up a drink, why? What's the problem? And not looking at that, what I know is the only answer is to go within. If you don't go within, you go without. And you're left in this place of wondering, wishing it was any other thing, taking a sticky plaster and it's not fixing the cut. From there, not treating the addiction or the alcoholism, you know, there was, there was problem there still. So what it led to was a, a taking myself homeless to Germany and spending some time in misery, drinking myself silly. So you kind of went back on yourself? I came back from Germany after being alcoholic to go into jail. There was warrants out and I was meant to have um, been in court. I'm arrested upon my arrival. From there I go to jail. In jail they put us on ant abuse and I deal with the ad action team where I'm able to work on alcoholism. So at what point does all this stop? So I, I come out of jail then and I'm in recovery. I'd gone to jail previously to, to get rid of probation and to deal with things in a quick manner. And this time it doesn't work. In 2014, they brought a law out where if you serve any custodial time, you get a year's probation. From year's probation, I believe this was God's plan, I, I found recovery. There was recovery meetings within probation. So I learned about what recovery is properly. I'd touched base with AA when I was younger because it had been signposted by doctors and so on, but I definitely didn't want to be in it. And I didn't think it was for me. Okay. You know, I didn't associate with being an alcoholic. That's the mad thing about this. And a lot of people say, don't they, that if you can't see or admit that there's a problem, then how can you deal with that issue? It took so many opportunities of it being so evident and put in front of us that I couldn't deny it. But then it's such a pull from the world as to, you know, it's socially acceptable, it's advertised everywhere, it's what we do in groups and so on. And it takes a huge amount of self-discipline to come away from that. And, and what I know is it's cunning, baffling, powerful. It'll pull you back in in many different respects if you don't have recovery, if you don't have a programme. So I found that in 2015. So we've kind of heard about the, the bad choices you've made, the circumstances that you found yourself in. You've finished probation. What happens now? Basically, I've got two parts to me week on my life. It's like the, the life of recovery, living in a flat, smoking weed, being on benefits, and certainly not you know knowing what I'm going to do because I feel bound by criminal record, mental health diagnosis, and, and feeling like I've got nowhere I can go from here. But then there's another half of me week, which is to go to Roca, which is a beautiful part of Sunderland, where my girlfriend was renting a nice flat on the Roca seafront you know, using me chefing skills to cook for us, almost like a, you know, what I'd always wanted, you know, an unassuming, lovely girlfriend who was perfect in many respects for what I would have wanted, pretty and loving. And I had this great like weekend lifestyle with her, but she didn't want to introduce us to our parents and believe that we couldn't really have a long-term relationship because they wouldn't accept me. I thought that to be snobby, but I could understand it, but I didn't like it. 
What, because obviously you've been in prison, you're a convict. I don't have any uh, future. I don't currently have a job. And for me, it was a stigma of like, you're pathetic. When I go out into the world to socialise, I found it really hard. Like there was a temptation in me to tell people I do something other than what I really do because I didn't like it. Because what do they think then? But at the point when I'm aware that Lisa is not going to be a long-term relationship regarding our parents, if what she says is right, and me realising that I'm bound by the fact that I'm stuck with this identity and this diagnosis and I don't know where to go. I don't believe that I could just try to get another job and, and try and like admit me conviction. So I feel bound. I feel bound. And I cry out to God at that point. I just said, I need you. And then God came in to my thought pattern and said to me, this is God, you need to write this down. How do you know that it was God at that point and not just, how do you know it wasn't the drugs or the drink? Because I'd experienced God doing this when I was younger. It's almost like a tune and fork that's been twanged. Your whole body has resonated with this revelance, this, this knowledge that he is talking to you. Yeah, so that's what happened. And in that place, he said, you need to write this down. This is important. What God said was very simple you could have the life you've always wanted, a life full of love, a life with God in it. Today on the 10th of the 4th, 17, I gave you an undoubtable sign, a sign that needs no explanation to any man. I told you that I loved you. You know what to do. And I got a shock when he said a life with God in it. Do you know what I mean? A life with God in it. Because to me that says, well, what does that mean? Like, but I've tried it. You know what I mean? What does it mean? If he says, you know what to do, what do I do? And the process of elimination comes in. That's the way that my thought patterns work, my head. And it was basically, what didn't you do at 21 or 22 when he talked to you last time? This was when I was on steroids. And the head tells me, what didn't you do? And it was pray, go to church yeah, yeah. and read the word. They were the three things. So I pray and I ask, what do I need to do? If you tell me I know what to do, what do I need to do? And he said, you need to go back to recovery. So I, I, I go back and I give it everything I've got because God said, do you know what I mean? If God says that God speaks to you, bang, all of the pain, shame, guilt, discomfort, dissatisfaction of everything that's happened before is gone immediately because I know God loves us. I've always known that. So when he speaks to us and he guides us, boom, I'm back on. Life is on again. Yeah, do you know yeah, what yeah. I mean? You've got a purpose bigger than yourself, haven't you? Yes, that I trust that the creator of me, of life, of the world is for me. Do you know what I mean? And he's got a plan and he knows how to get us out of it because I've cried out and boom, here he is. It's like there's someone like at the moment sat listening to this and they're thinking, well, you sound really weird. Like, <laughs> you know, do you need to up your medication? Like, what would you say to them? I would say, what have you got to lose to ask? If you can believe to any extent that there is a potential for something greater than what you see in this life and you ask him, you ask God, if you don't believe him, but you ask him anyway with the hope that it might be real, I trust that he'll answer you. I trust it. Like when you hear these like inspirational stories, like we always think of a finished thing. So it's like, I live this life, I live this life, I live this life, but actually now, ta-da, I am, yeah. I'm done. I am the finished product. What is very evident to me sitting in front of you right now is that actually you know that you could slip back into that. Absolutely. Like, like you only say that because you've took the time to listen to the story. Like most of the world still don't see what you've just suggested or said there. Like they don't. They, they, most people are either, you know, like, like just seeing the form. You know, people, people are in ego and in, in, in ego sees nothing but the form. It doesn't look at the spiritual. It doesn't listen to the story. It just judges on the surface what it sees. And I'm not that big an inspiration to most of the world. I'm just a normal person doing a normal thing. And so I should is what most people think. And your situation could happen to anyone like absolutely anyone we all go through stuff and i think sometimes like the circumstances that we go through unfortunately because of maybe the 
the choices that we've made mm. and also sometimes as well the circumstances that we've found ourselves in out of no fault of our own. What, what I've done, my past doesn't define us. Diagnosis doesn't define us. Do you know what I mean? What defines us is what God says about us and how I see myself in God's eyes and how I can be of service to other people. Say if I knew you when you were going through all this rubbish, prison, the diagnosis, you know, and then now we're sat back here, what would I see like the biggest changes in your life? Yeah. So, you know, like I'm consistent as a person. I do the same thing again and again and, and, and I do the best to achieve and accept as much as I can, you know, what things are. I look in the mirror and I see myself for what I am. From the outside, what you'll see is somebody who is moving forward in a consistent manner, becoming more humble in life as they move along. What have you got now that you didn't have before? I'm responsible for other people. So I now work as a healthcare assistant in the community and working for a compassion-based care provider. And I, and I have that responsibility, something I would never have been given, nor did I even have it for myself prior. And I've done this consistently for five solid years now, looked after myself, cared about things, done things to the best of my ability, stewarded finance, been a word of, man of integrity, both word, deed and action. Not perfect, but certainly attempted and, and, and done to the best of my ability. And, and now I'm in a position where I'm completely stone cold, sober and clean, nearly three and a half years now sober and 155 days for your cannabis today. I have a program, a sponsor, and I've got responsibility. I've got hopes and dreams. Would you say it's all about routine? Yeah, routine's massively important to me. I believe routine makes the man, you know, but I do also understand that like for the calling that God's got on my life, he doesn't want us to be in a rigorous way of like my own control. So I have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. I have to be happy with the plan being flexible, fluid and changing, ever changing. So it's incredibly hard for somebody who likes their ducks in a row and likes to be prepared to, to be happy with whatever God's got going on, whatever the day holds. I've got no choice but to hand over my life and my will to God on a morningly basis, on a daily basis, and pray my way throughout every day and, and be completely on edge really as to whether or not something's going to break, something's going to need replaced, to give in faith, to give money in faith. There's so much about my life right now, which is just that I'm not in control, you know, and that's the way it's meant to be. I know this from recovery. From someone who might be sat listening to this, going like, this sounds absolutely crazy. Like, how can you give control of your life to something yeah. that you don't even really know exists. We've got to be the passenger, not the pilot. And do you think that being a passenger and not the pilot, do you think that is the key to recovery? Do you think that is the key to success? Absolutely, yeah. You 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 give over control willingly. So like almost like I can't do this anymore. Yeah. If this is left for me, I'm where did my best thinking get us? Like where was I when I was in control? Do you know what I mean? Like I was drinking myself around Germany like an absolute fool, shoplifting me drinking me food and me toiletries and getting moved on from police station to police station because they just don't really want to deal with that hopeless case. You just get little charges against your name where you're just a mess, you know, you're a mess. Like I was hopeless, do you know what I mean? I got given a foundation, a stability, an ability to grow from. Which is God. God, a home, you know, to, to have people around us who are allowing me an opportunity to be credible, to vouch for us, to give us a reference and so on. So, so that started as it meant to go on and it's still going on now. So I've got a lot to lose. Do you know what I mean? I don't want to break this, lose this, make a mistake. And there are lots of mistakes, don't get us wrong, but no major ones. I'm not going to just say, oh, stuff this, it's not working and chuck me toys out the pram. I, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that I don't do that. You know, I don't lose me cool anymore if I can help it. Other than obviously keeping yourself busy and working, 
I'm also told as well that like you're really great with spoken word. So I never knew what spoken word was, but I, I was doing it without knowing that. So I kind of wanted to um, try to form some kind of identity in doing this. And I loved rap music. I was into hip hop. I played a lot of basketball and that was kind of like the desire. But I didn't want to become some kind of peculiar version of me. So I wrote a, a small body of work in my late teens to early adulthood. And um, that became the foundation for what I found out in the future was, was what spoken word is, performed poetry. It can sound rapped, it can be rapped, but ultimately it's performed poetry. So I guess like some people like would write down their feelings and thoughts. Some people make like videos. Your thing is spoken word. I mean, I've got a short one. I could always yeah, do go one for it. it. Would you like to hear one? Yeah, let's do it. So the latest piece that I've written, which is a short piece, is called Transcends All Human Understanding. And this will just give you an understanding of, of what it is and what I, what I mean. Flowing rivers of living water with joy delivers the lamp to the slaughter. Passion burning set ablaze fashions the vessel turning the gaze upon things above and not below. Purges the rot and kneads the dough. That wind of truth whispers sparks and cinders the focus unparalleled such a great listener. Stages for ages of spiritual food starts off on the milk for those first days of school. Smooth as silk, embodies the rules of justice with purpose. Nobody's fool, a gentleman ever present and gentle with correction. Quells the perfectionist with ambitions of excellence. Ever majestic, fends off the arrows of the weak and pathetic. Upright with the standard, learned, prudent, while in tandem. Holding the lantern down that dark and winding road. Heats up the brave and ignites the bold. A decision maker is carved from this storm-ravaged tree. The difference maker starve for Christ's unity. The matrix entered hell bent on denting the skull of the snake with a teal before pressing the weight of the world on demonic aggression it's finished he says or did i fail to mention there's a battle for your soul yet the choice is yours whether soul full of busy or agonizingly bored this is for you this spiritual tool this comforting breeze wants to take you to school well versed in history present and future everyone's friend it was just the same for lucifer fancy a trip to another realm or perhaps a little dip as you prepare to delve in a river so tranquil send shivers through your bones set your place at the banquet the prodigal's mind is flowing with lyrics that the logical man can't explain with physics. The fruit is showing no signs of rotting, nor your enemy is always plotting. Don't partner with it, don't be complicit, the fruit speaks for itself, you don't have to pick it. Acquired by faith and delivered by grace, that's a gospel good man that the thief tried to take. The truth is the truth no matter which way you paint it. Bloodstained wood when those nails penetrated, making angels cry from heaven that victory call. The Holy Spirit living and sent down for you all. I would like to encourage people that where you feel right now is not the end. It's not how you'll always feel. This too shall pass. It's not about how you feel. Your thoughts and feelings aren't who you are. They're not the end. They're not necessarily the best marker for what's really going on. You can feel brave when you should be scared. You can feel scared when you should be brave. There are reasons why our mental health can be affected by choices we've made, drugs we've taken, the way that people are, the injustice of life at times. But God knows you, he knows who you are, he made you for a purpose and he loves you. And by trusting that a power greater than you could restore you to sanity when you've lost it, you can get there just by handing over your life and your will and, and becoming the passenger and letting God be the pilot. He already is. That's the thing, that's the, the, the funny thing about it. When, when we're feeling hopeless and helpless, there is an answer. It's to no longer feel like we need to do anything but to, to submit. Submitting is the best way of fighting the spiritual malady of self, drink, drugs, and to break the cycle of offending and, and being bound by an identity that is that of, of a criminal, a hopeless case. 
this will work for anyone who puts God in front of themselves, anyone, anybody who, who hands over their life and their will to God as they understand him, they will be free, they will be saved. Thank you very much for chatting. It's a pleasure. It has been a bit amazing, actually. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I hope this does something for someone. Stories of Hope is brought to you by Junction 42. This episode was produced, presented and mixed by Richie Lee. Music by Young and Free.